I absolutely love these guys. I did their wedding less than a year ago. <laughs> they've been, well, a year, and, a year and one day ago. So they've been very busy in their year. Tomorrow? Oh, see, it is less than a year. I was like so close to being right. <laughs> so, Remy, can I hold her? All right. Sorry, cover the belly. Be proper, Remy. Okay. Oh, wake up. Like, Hi. Good I? morning. Oh, you're going to cry now. No. It's okay. Shh. As long as she faces the crowd and checks everybody out. All right. There you go. Okay. Sorry, I'm a little lost in my love for Remy. Well, we'll we're uh, doing a dedication here. Um, we love de- dedicating babies to the Lord. And what that means, it's not making a promise. Uh, we're not encouraged in the Bible to make promises to God or to other people. We're encouraged, uh, like in marriage, you're not really making a promise. You're becoming one. In God's will, you're becoming one. And uh, what we're doing here is we're, we're committing to be with her and to love her and protect her and to be one with her and one as a big family. In the Lord. So it's very special. She is just a darling. Oh my gosh. So we're going to, in the Bible, Samuel was dedicated by his mother when when she uh, um, asked the Lord for a baby and she was barren and she called upon the Lord and the Lord answered her. um, And that baby was a tremendous blessing. And she wanted then to turn around that and bless the Lord with that baby in return and uh i know jeremy and jill wanted babies as soon as they got married and they succeeded (laughs) and the lord um has given them a child and their desire is to honor the lord with that child and so we're going to pray with them and and uh and pray over remy and as parents you know you guys have a responsibility to raise her in the lord and so we are all going to partner with you and be right here next to you and we'll call you out if you're not doing it in the Lord's way and that's what our um, that's right mom that's right that's why we're all here that's why we all join together and we do this publicly is so that there can be accountability and love um, for this family oh so precious okay Um, if you're family you guys want to come up and pray over them come come on up Come on up, Dana. Do that. Oh, I lost her pacifier. Oh. All right. So let's dedicate this precious girl to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your love and for Remy and for how you have made her just so beautiful and so fat. And we praise you, Lord, for um, the work you've done in Jeremy's life as the leader of this family. Uh, Lord, he loves to honor you and to, um, to seek you. And I've just seen so much of your spirit in him and your love, especially when he looks at his daughter and when he loves his daughter. And, uh, Lord, I pray that he would be a father that honors you and, and glorifies you in every way. And we just thank you for Jill and her absolute love and adoration for Remy and for, uh, for Jeremy and how um, she's a Proverbs 31 woman already. And uh, we just thank you for what you've done in this family. Lord, you have um, done great things, and we give you all the praise and glory. And Lord, we pray that you protect Remy 
from anything that is harmful. And I pray that um, she would grow up and her gifts would be so amazing. Uh, Father, you've chosen to give her a gift. And um, I pray that it would be um, just perfect and that we would all be blown away by what you do in this little child. Uh, we, we know that she's going to go through difficulties and hard times in her life. And I pray that she would always be encouraged by her family and by her church to look to you in those hard times. Lord, we all need that encouragement, and it's not going to be easy. Um, but Lord, we thank you that you're going to walk with Remy every step of the way, and you're going to bless her. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Oh. Oh. Sorry, beard in the face. Okay. There you go. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> All right. Well, that was just awesome. Anyone else want to have kids and get them dedicated unto the Lord? We will do it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Got to get married first, bro. <laughs> All right. Well, go ahead and uh, now take out your Bibles where you have your finger in the Exodus chapter 7. And we're going to begin this chapter, and uh, it's going to be quite the adventure. So, let's get into it. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you, and we, we, we need your spirit to even begin to understand the depths of what uh, is taught to us in this chapter. I thank you that you have arranged your whole word uh, to, get, to teach us lessons. Lord, this is not just an account of history, but this is your a message to us, and, and we're going to dig in, we're going to investigate, Lord, what you have for us. And, but more than all that, uh, it, we, we hope our brains learn, but we want our hearts to be transformed and to be changed by your Holy Spirit, God. We cannot understand your word, but we certainly cannot soften our own hearts. And we ask that you would give us soft hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're beginning a new part of the book of Exodus today. Uh, we finished part one, which was chapters one through six, which was the need for a redeemer or the need for redemption for the people. We saw them enslaved in Egypt. Now we get into a whole new section. We kick it up another gear. We're in chapter seven through 11, section two, which is the power of the redeemer displayed, or we're going to see the plagues, the 10 plagues in Egypt is what we're getting into now. Um, this is all about power. And the title of the, the, the message today is Mighty versus Almighty. And it's all about power. And specifically, we're going to be talking about spiritual power. You have God, you have angels who are kind of God's spiritual. Um, you could call them children, you could call them creation. They're, they're servants, messengers. And then you have Satan, who was once one of those spiritual beings, and demons who are other spiritual beings who fell with Satan. And in the, these are all invisible creatures to us. They invest in, exist in the spiritual realm. But they contact this world. They, they're a part of this world. It's very interesting how that works. And then you have man as the other character in our discussion today. Man is flesh, which means we live in the spiritual world around us, but man is also spirit, 
which means we connect and engage with the spiritual world, the invisible world. We partake in that world as well. And this, that's why we were very special in God's creation. We're the only part of creation that is located in both realms, the invisible spiritual realm and the physical realm. But we got to know that the spiritual power or realm is always greater and higher and more powerful than the physical realm around us. Although many times the physical world mirrors and represents what is going on in the spiritual world because they are connected, but the spiritual world always is more powerful and more influential than the physical world around us. It's, it's higher, okay? In Ephesians 6.2, we begin with this verse and it says, we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The battle that we're fighting is not physical, we learn in Ephesians, it's spiritual. And we're going to take that principle, we're going to go all the way back to the book of Exodus, and we're going to see it played out over many chapters, the battle in the spiritual realm. But we see it also played out in the physical realm. We see ten plagues, but there's a, a higher spiritual thing going on there. It's not just frogs and flies and gnats and whatever. It's spiritual. We're going to see that. And the people of Israel, they are enslaved physically in Egypt at this point in our story. But they're also enslaved spiritually. And that's the big point here. And that's why it's not sufficient to break someone's physical dependence on alcohol or on drugs when their heart is just going to replace that with something else, another substitute. And so we have to be very careful what we encourage people when they have a, a dependence on some sort of physical thing or just they worship any false idol. We have to be careful that we're not just encouraging them to get rid of that, but to instead turn to the Lord and be filled with him and not just empty. They must be redeemed from the control of that drug or that alcohol or that spiritual force that tempts them is, uh, is going to come back and that desire is going to be strong in their heart, okay? So let's, with all that as just our introduction, setting the stage for this big spiritual battle and the importance of the spiritual realm around us, let's look at our text. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Now this is a big change from chapter 6 and everything before we've seen in Moses' life. You see, he was weak and feeble and at the end of chapter 6. Even the very last words of chapter 6, he's like, Yeah, but I still can't speak right. My, my mouth is still uncircumcised. Meaning... He still had this um, really intense knowledge of how weak he was and how needy he was. But here at the verse of seven, chapter 1, verse 7, we see God is now making him strong. God has come in where Moses is weak, and he has now provided a spiritual strength. He is equipped Moses, and I just want to briefly say that's how grace works. 
That's how grace works. We declare our weakness to God. Do you remember how many times Moses said, I can't speak? How many times have we seen it so far? Seven times. And seven in the Bible is the number of completion or perfection, which means that for our lesson, Moses is saying, I am completely weak. I am completely incapable of doing all that you have asked me to do. I am very weak. So we declare our weakness and God supplies his spiritual strength. And that is the principle of grace that we need to remember. It's a movement from unbelief to faith. Moses struggled with unbelief and weakness, but he's now moving into a place of faith where he's still weak, but he's becoming strong in faith. Everything is measured by faith with God. God is not going around saying, how much of the Bible do you have memorized? What doctrines do you have down pat and ready to explain? That's not actually how it works. Yes, we are weak. He knows we're weak. We're needy. He knows we're needy. He is measuring. He is checking. He is searching for faith. Who will say, in all my weakness, I'm going to trust in the Lord? Well, our text here says that I have made you as God. And that's a weird phrase when you, when you read it the first time. But it means you're like God's ambassador. You speak with God's authority. You have God's given authority to talk to Pharaoh, to speak to the world with spiritual authority on behalf of God and God's word and God's will. You can speak it to Pharaoh and to the people. That's what that means. And he says, Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. And this helps us to understand what the definition of a prophet is in the Bible. It's someone who speaks the words of God. All right, verse 2. You shall speak all that I command to you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh and send the children of Israel out of his land. I will harden his heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. All right, so we're going to do this today. We're going to ask the question, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God or Pharaoh? Ah, <laughs> may one not want to answer that so fast. This is a question that has been debated in Christianity for the past 2,000 years. Because it basically gets down to the question of, Calvinism or Arminianism. Have you guys heard those terms before? Calvinism is a general way of thinking where God chooses who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. It's very complex, much more complex than that, but that's the part that we'll look at right now. Arminianism is another guy, Arminius, who lived about the same time as Calvin. He said, no, 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 no. People decide if they want to choose God or not. So does God choose you, or do you choose God? And uh, it seems simple, but it's not. It's very complex, okay? Now, one side of that, if you become really dogmatic, it becomes really problematic for other scriptures that oppose that side. And if you choose this side, and you say, I'm going to be all on this side, it can become really problematic on the different scriptures. And so we, we have here a complex issue. And after 2,000 years, we finally figured it out. I'm going to tell you today. No, I'm just joking. I'm, I'm just joking. 
But I do have, I will teach this with all that I have in me. I've, stu- I've studied and I'm going to give you what I believe the Bible teaches, okay? Now, if you disagree with me, that is totally fine. You're probably right and I'm probably wrong. And you're smarter than me. And what else can I say to keep you as my friend? Did that work? Are we all on the same page? I'm going to talk about it. If you disagree, that's fine. Let's talk about it. Please don't be like, and get all like that, okay? Okay. So some might say, why would God punish Pharaoh for doing evil and not letting the people go when God made him do it? Okay, that's a question that you can ask. But the deeper question is, does God make people sin? And does he punish them and send them to hell for sinning when he made them do it? That's, that's a good question. We have to think about that question, okay? Well, God did not make Pharaoh do this. I'm going to say that right up front. We have three examples in the Bible of God hardening hearts. And I'm going to go through those real quickly with you because we have to establish everything the Bible says about God hardening hearts and what it means. First, we have this story of Pharaoh. And we see that Pharaoh stood against God and stood against God's people. Before God ever said anything to him or said anything, Pharaoh was already standing against God and standing against God's people. And the end of the story is Pharaoh is destroyed. Okay? Number two, we have Sihon, the king of Heshbon, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. And that says... But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. So Sihon, again, stood against God and against God's people, and he was destroyed. Okay? The third example we have is the Hivites, H-I-V-I-T-E-S. In Joshua chapter 11, Verse 19, it says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle for the Lord, uh, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel. It's actually not the Hivites. It's the other nations besides the Hivites. Um, That they should come against Israel in battle and that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. So, Again, these Hiv- the, the nations except the Hivites, they stood against God and stood against God's people. And what was the end? They were destroyed. Okay. Now we are going to go to Romans chapter 9. So keep your finger here in Exodus, but look at Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at some important verses in Romans chapter 9 to help us hopefully understand what is going on here. Romans chapter 9, verse 18. We see that God does harden hearts. But what exactly does that mean? That God hardened their hearts. And we see a group of people that seem to have their hearts hardened. They seem to be people who stand against God and stand against God's people. We'll look at verse 18 of chapter 9. Therefore, 
He, God, has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Now, if you just read this verse, you get the idea that God, that God's will stands alone and nothing affects it. That he just arbitrarily chooses hard, not hard, hard, not hard, hard, based on nothing. But this verse doesn't stand all alone. It stands with the entire scriptures, but even in this text, that's not true. God doesn't arbitrarily harden. He wills, and that's very important to understand, what does God will? He wills mercy, and he wills hardening on certain people. But his will never exists without one word that we need to remember, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. F-O-R-E, knowledge. <laughs> I didn't try to spell that one. <laughs> well, foreknowledge is something that you and I don't understand and don't have because we're finite and, and the future to us is completely unknown. We don't know what is happening this afternoon. We don't. God has complete, perfect foreknowledge. And we can't eliminate that when, dis- when talking about a discussion on his will and on predestination. God knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your decisions before you'll ever make them. And they must, that knowledge must come into play when we're having a discussion about predestination or this, what we're talking about, hardening of hearts. I want you to look at the verse right before the verse we just read. Verse 17 in Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very person I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in the earth. God knew Pharaoh. He knew that he was a stubborn mule. <laughs> right, honey? And he knew that this guy, Pharaoh, would reject mercy and grace. And for that reason, it says God raised him up to be Pharaoh with the foreknowledge of who he was. His, he knew the decisions Pharaoh would make. So he raised him up to be the king of the Egyptians at this time. Why? He says, so that my power can be seen. But I also say, for you. For you. So that you could be confident that no matter what stands against you, God's power can and will overcome them, and he will deliver you. I know some of you guys have mighty trials, horrible circumstances. Know that that's brought in by the Lord. The Lord is sovereign in your situation. It's not just a mistake. Nothing in your life is a mistake. And that's why we don't say God is not sovereign. God is sovereign. He sovereignly decides everything, okay? But he's also love, and he knows, and he's for us. So look back at verse 10. Look back at verse 10 and 11. And not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, 
but that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Again, in a vacuum, you might look at this and say, he calls just based on nothing. It's just arbitrary. But again, that's not how it works. It is ba- it's not based on works. It's not based on what they do. It's based on something called a call. A call. Now, that's very important for us to underline that and know that it's not based on works. It's based on the call and the response to that call. And you're like, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, I'm going to show you in just a couple of verses later. It's based on the call, and it's based on the response to that call. How do I know it's based on the response to the call? Because Paul says so. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, in other words, they didn't work on it, they had no works, they were wicked people, but they've attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, have not attained to the righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him, will not be put to shame. Again, whoever believes will not be put to shame. The Gentiles responded to the call, he's saying. This is not a different book. This is the same chapter, and that's why I wanted you guys to open to, to because uh, if you're on the one side that is really big on God's predestination, the Calvinist side, you will, you will use chapter 9 of, of Romans as a big proof text for your doctrine. But I want you guys to see that in Romans chapter 9, it doesn't teach that he just arbitrarily chooses, but there's a call And there's a response to the call. The Gentiles had that response. And what was the response? Faith. Faith was the response. Salvation is by faith. And God, in his sovereignty, has decided that it's by faith. That's his decision. He could have decided salvation was by picking your nose. But he didn't decide that because he's sovereign. He chooses everything, and he chose salvation will be by faith. And that's how you can have sovereignty with man's responsibility, free will, in unity, not arguing against each other, but together when you understand foreknowledge and God's sovereign decision of the way of salvation is by faith. They responded to the call. Anyone can respond to the call. The Jews, however, in this situation, didn't respond to the call because they didn't get God's righteousness because they didn't want God's righteousness. They wanted whose righteousness? Their own righteousness. They did not want to humble themselves and say, I can't be righteous of myself. They wanted to pridefully stand up and say, look how good I'm doing according to the law. And in so doing, they rejected Jesus. They stumbled at the stumbling stone and they did not receive God's righteousness, and they go to hell. Period. But anyone can respond to the call. Paul even says so in the next chapter. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. 
in the next chapter, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have I ruffled any feathers yet? Okay, that's okay. So God foreknows those who will trust him and respond by faith. That is true. And, the one, though, and those are the ones that respond to the call. They are the elect. On the contrary, those who seek to be right by the law or on their own, apart from God's ordained way of grace, his sovereign choice of the way grace works by faith, they do not obtain righteousness, but they go to hell because no one's good enough or perfect enough to stand in, in the light of God's law. We all fall short, and there's only one place for someone who's a sinner, a lawbreaker, to go, and that's hell. So it all works well together. God always agrees with your decision because he foreknew your decision. He never goes contrary to your decision. He's a gentleman. God is. He doesn't force anybody. He knew your decision before you did. So anything he does is right because he knows everything and he always does everything right. It's very important to understand this. God doesn't violate Pharaoh's free will. He's not making Pharaoh do something he doesn't already want to do. Pharaoh loves rebelling. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he did it despite of evidence of God's mercy and not because of it. God told him, you let my people go, you'll be okay. But Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. God made it abundantly clear that Pharaoh was wrong that God would be merciful to him if he responded to the call. But God also knew who Pharaoh was. And he told Pharaoh, Moses over and over and over again what was going to happen, right? He told him, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. It's not going to be good. So now I'm going to show you how this is taught to us from, from the book of Exodus, okay? I've demonstrated, I believe, that God does choose, but it's based on foreknowledge, and it agrees with our choice. Okay? Now, in the book of Exodus, I want to show you how this works out. First, we have foreknowledge taught. And that is that God knows the future, and that's here in verse 21. Yeah, go back to Exodus, and we're going to zoom through. I'm going to read to you some of the verses, but you can see them for yourself. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. But I will harden his heart that he will not let the people go. Then in chapter 7, 3, we just read, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, both of these are in the future tense. Future. God is prophesying. God is foretelling because God has foreknowledge what is going to happen. Very important to understand. Foreknowledge is the first thing. These are the first times it's mentioned that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. All I've done here, what we're doing here, is we looked up Pharaoh's hard heart in the Bible and we're going in order of when we see those and what is actually being said by the Bible. 
First, the first two times, it's God prophesying that the Pharaoh's heart will be hard, that I will harden his heart, okay? Now, we have free will taught. And what we're going to see here is seven times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So before God hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart seven times. We have chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. It says nothing about God there. Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not let them go, and as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. It's two. He refuses to let the people go. Then you go down to verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Three. And he did not heed them. Then you go to chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15, 19, and 32. Verse 15, Pharaoh saw that there was relief. He hardened his heart. Four times Pharaoh has hardened his own heart. And he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Then the magicians and Pharaohs, verse 19, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Five. And he did not heed them. And then verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Okay? And then chapter 9, verse 7. But Pharaoh sent, and, and indeed, not every one of the livestock of Israel was dead. So the heart of Pharaoh became hard. Seven times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. In agreement with the foreknowledge of God, not because of the foreknowledge of God, in agreement. Now, we are going to see seven times that God confirms Pharaoh's decision. Seven speaks of what? Completion, perfection, finishing. Pharaoh was completely hard is what the Bible is telling us here. This is no joke, no mistake what the Bible is trying to get across to us. Pharaoh is completely hard. So God has every right to now agree with Pharaoh. And what happens? Seven times the Lord hardens his heart. Verse chapter 9, verse 12, just continuing down. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And then verse 34, Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder. The Lord hardened his heart. Chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, now the Lord said to Moses, I have hardened the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. Verse 20 and verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let him go. Chapter 11, verse 10. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before the Lord, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then chapter 14, verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh the king. Seven times. The Bible is so clear and helps us to understand what is going on. Hmm. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God or Pharaoh? Yes is the answer. Yes is the answer. But more specifically, God knew that Pharaoh would have a hard heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, number two. Number three, God then confirmed Pharaoh's decision by making him even more hard than he even wanted to be. And this is why you can never wait until your deathbed to get saved. Why? Because you don't know if your heart's going to be hard on that day. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Do not wait until your deathbed 
I, I'm pretty sure most deathbed conversions are not legit. You just don't know what their heart is. We don't know. And we can't see their life after that. Saying, I mean, I'm, I'm, you can get saved. The thief on the cross does get saved. You, if it's truly legit, God softens their heart. I mean, great. But you can't just fall on that and say, oh, I'm going to sin and sin and sin my whole life and then repent on my last day. We cannot depend on that. Do you guys know anyone that lives like that? That has that attitude? I do. I know people that that is their absolute plan. When I'm dying of cancer, that's when I'll get right with the Lord. I even have a friend who came to me and said, how far can I go sinning before God kills me? And I'm like, you have such a hard heart. You have such a hard heart. Today's day of salvation. Hear the gospel today and repent today so that that day you won't be fighting against your own hard heart, but also God who's hardened your heart and agreed with your decision. Hmm. All right, let's get to our text now. Chapter 7, verse 4. The Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. My only comment on that is, boy, are they old. Just kidding. It's not my only comment. God wants the Egyptians to know that he is God. Why? Because God actually loves the Egyptians too. And this is, again, it's about the power of the Redeemer, of God. And God wants all the world, even his enemies, to know that he is God and that their gods who they're worshiping are not God. So we're going to go through 10 plagues and we're going to kind of see how these 10 plagues do connect with some of the gods of Egypt. But in general, why is this important? Because Yahweh, our God, the God here of the Bible and of the children of Israel and of Jesus and all Christian believers, he is more powerful than any God. And I should, stir, and I should serve him instead of other gods. But I can serve other gods if I choose to. You see, other spiritual entities are real. And at this point in time, Satan was probably appearing to the Egyptians. And Satan was probably convincing them that he was God because he could do supernatural, miraculous things. We're going to see that here in just a moment. And so God, our God, Yahweh, he is coming in. He has his own plan. And part of that plan is he has to prove to Egypt and to the whole world that he is the most powerful God, that all other gods stand against him, and um, they will not stand. Every human is serving somebody. And if you think you're serving yourself, you're not. You're actually serving Satan because you've been called to serve God, but by serving yourself, you're rebelling against that, and that happens to be Satan's kingdom is one of rebellion, and so you've actually teamed up with Satan even though you don't even believe in Satan. Are you serving God? 
Is that what your life is about? If I was an angel observing your life, what would I say you're spending your life on? Your kingdom or God's kingdom? Let's look at our text again, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast his rod before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh called called the wise men and the sorcerers, and so the magicians of Egypt, and they did also in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. Ha! But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Here we have a crazy thing. What? A couple things are striking about this. Number one, how in the world can these sorcerers do this? I thought magic was invented by Disney to make crazy movies. But we need to remember, this is all about power. This is all about who's more powerful. And Satan is mighty. And Satan does have power, and apparently this is one of his powers. I'm not here to argue with the Word of God. I'm just telling what the Word of God says. Satan is able to do miracles. And that might blow your mind. And it might rattle something inside you, because there may be a part inside you that says, if I see a miracle, that must be from God. But that is not true. That's not true. He's, Satan is greater than men think. And he can perform these miracles. He can let men, he can endow men, empower them with the ability to perform miracles. And our lesson here is just because it's miraculous doesn't mean it's true or from God. Benny Hinn. <coughs> <laughs> or whoever you want to, whoever claims to do miracles but they don't honor Jesus Christ. That's a big problem. Satan doesn't want to lose his people. Satan likes living in Egypt. He likes that the people in Egypt worship him. That's his whole deal is he loves being worshipped. So he empowers his people to do a miracle, but God here shows himself to be stronger. His snakes eat the snakes of Satan. We're going to see, in fact, that these guys, these sorcerers, are going to be able to duplicate the first three plagues. But what's funny is that they can't take them away. They can duplicate them. They can bring frogs. They can pour out blood. And it's funny, they can't take them away. Because Satan, even though he wants to be worshipped, he also loves ruining your life. Even more. He hates you. He has mighty powers, but God is almighty. And God is about love. And God brings plagues so that there can be heart change. Because he loves you. Satan brings plagues just because he hates you. And he wants your life to be miserable. Verse 13. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. God has the power to deliver you and me. And he is not limited. Nothing is too hard for him. In the book of Jeremiah, I love this, where, where 
Jeremiah prays to the Lord and he says, Oh Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And God responds back to him a couple verses later and says, Yeah, I'm God, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? He's like, you're right. God's ability and God's power are not questionable. They are mighty, almighty. And he can deliver you from all your sin, from all your sorrow, from all your doubt, from all your fears, from all your addictions, from all your self-sufficiencies, from all your self-centeredness, and from your failures, and from your pain and your sickness. He can do all that. The only problem that we see from our text is hard-heartedness. Our hard hearts. We won't believe God's promises and we won't experience God's power when we have hard hearts. I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I have a hard heart? Do I doubt God's love and power for me in my life? Do I pridefully think that I don't need God? Or, Or I won't acknowledge my true brokenness and sinfulness before him? Do I hide it, bury it between me and God? A hard heart is the result of pride and disbelieving God's word. And a hard heart only grows more hard. That's why we're talking about this today. Because if, it's, if that is you today, and all of us have a certain amount of hardness, okay? If you answer, no, I don't have a hard heart, you probably have a hard heart. A hard heart only grows harder. It's like a callus. It's like a callus. When I go a little while without playing my guitar, my calluses go away and um, it hurts to play guitar. But if I'm playing every week, I have no problem. I could pray, play for hours and hours and hours. It never hurts. My fingers are, are hard as a rock right there. And that's fine. Um, doesn't hurt me at all. Florence Franklin of Peoria, Illinois. Anyone ever been to Peoria, Illinois? Okay, well, BK, next time you go back, and anyone who goes there, you can go see Florence Franklin, who holds the record for the largest collection of calluses in the world. Um, They're not on her body. She collects them in jars. And she has over 200 pounds of calluses in her collection. And she keeps them in the front of her living room so that people who come by can see them. And some people even bring her calluses and autograph specimens for her as they give them to her as a personal touch, you know? I just thought you would enjoy that. (laughs) See, our hearts can get calloused. As you know, a callous is when you lose feeling. It becomes dull. Now, I was reading in my devotions this week. I'm in Psalm 119. I've been going through it. And then Dana and I were reading this Um, we were studying, and we came across this verse in Psalm 119, verse 70. And I'm going to read you this verse. Their heart is as fat as grease, 
but I delight in your law. So I was reading that in my devotions, and I was like, what? (laughs) As fat as grease? And it didn't make any sense to me, but I was just like, hmm, okay. And I just kept on going, right? But then I was reading a a commentary, and the same verse came up. Their heart is as fat as grease. And I was like, what in the world is that supposed to mean? Okay, I didn't understand it. I was like, this is crazy. Now, before my devotions, I prayed, Lord, I pray you would just serve me and, and speak to my heart what you want me to know. And it was this fat of grease thing. I had no idea what it meant. So I looked up all the other versions of Scripture, the other translations and, and the original language, to see if I could understand what it meant. And this is what I found. I'm going to read you some of the other versions. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. Their heart is hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. And I I do that because I was like, is my fat unfeeling? I guess it does kind of. Here's another one. Their hearts are dull and stupid. That's the NIV. They just throw it right out there. Here's another one. Their heart is gross like fat, but I delight in your law. So as as I was reading this, I started to understand that that verse is about hardness of heart and callousness. And I was like, wow, Lord, thank you so much for helping me understand that your law and looking to your law will help me from having a calloused heart or fat like grease. So now we can say that to each other. Is your heart fat like grease? And what that means is, do you have a calloused heart? Have you grown hard and insensitive? Okay, well, let's now apply that to our New Testament in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I say, therefore, and testify, Paul says in Ephesians, in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Having a hard heart is not what believers should have, Paul says. It leads to giving up and giving in to sin. Have you ever just given up? And, and maybe just indulged in sin for a season of your life? What is the solution? Well, continuing on, Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you may put on the new man which is created according to God in righteousness and holiness. Paul says the solution to that hard heart, to the, where the Gentiles are and where we can slip back into when we have, get past feeling and we get that fat as grease heart, says the solution is personal connection with Jesus. He says here, learning Christ, hearing him, being taught by him, the truth that is in him. 
All four of those things, Paul says, is the solution to this hard-hearted, fatty heart. His cross is our cross. We join him on that cross. Our sin, nature, and penalty is nailed there and killed with Jesus. That's how we learn of him, is by joining him on the cross. Then we rise with his new life, his resurrection life. We sang about it earlier. And his resurrection life pulses through our veins. And it's his life. And we're filled with his will and his law is written on our hearts, which pumps it through our veins. And that's how it, that's how we become new creations. We can never learn the law enough to obey it. It can only ever be implanted in a humble heart that wants to join Jesus on the cross by faith. Jesus will teach you by his grace how to put off that old man and to walk as a new creation, to be holy and righteous. Jesus melts away the fatty heart, the fat around our hearts. He takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh a soft and humble heart that's ready to believe his word and his promises. So a hard heart, you could say, equals pride and unbelief. But a soft heart comes through grace, which equals humility and faith. It just helps us understand it. We don't want to be like this guy. This was from the Babylon Bee this week. Jesus knocks down door of man's heart with battering ram. It's fake news, by the way. Just in, it's a satire, just so you know. Stating that he had felt the Lord softly and tenderly knocking for many years, but he had thus refused to allow him in, local man Matt Jones reported Tuesday that Jesus had knocked down the door of his heart with the battering ram. The Messiah reportedly broke in during, the, during a gospel call at church when it became clear that the man wasn't going to let him in peacefully. Standing at the door and knocking just wasn't doing the trick, I guess, Jones said. So he busted in there and took care of business. I guess he was going to get in one way or another, he, he, he added. After breaking through the front door, Jesus reportedly got to work cleaning various messes that the man had made over many years and began to remodel the heart's stone walls with ones made of living tissue. And I thought that was brilliantly written, just brilliant, because it shows how hard we are, how hard-hearted we are. Because Jesus doesn't break in with a battering ram. He knocks politely at the door of our hearts. And we have a, a choice every day to respond to the call. When Jesus calls, he stands outside, he calls and says, come, abide with me, Spend time with me. If you guys ever read the, the book of the Song of Solomon, you guys, you know that book? It's a romance book about the uh, love life of a couple people. And, and there's a couple ways to interpret it. And one of the ways is that it's a relationship between Jesus and his church. And there's a couple really great nuggets and verses in there that give us some insight into the heart of Jesus for us. And one of them is when he says... Behold, I stand outside the lattice of the window, and he calls out to his beloved. And he says, come out here and, and come and spend time with me. Early in the morning, he calls out. 
But she's like, oh, I don't have clothes on. I don't want to get up and do it. And she's just lazy. And so he takes off, and he's about his business doing his work. And then she gets up a little bit later, and she's like, oh, I missed out on time with my Lord. I, I'm so disappointed. And she goes all through looking. And it, it's a big story. But the point is, Jesus calls you each day to spend time with him in the word so that you can make sure that your heart is not getting calloused. Paul says, learning of him, having his life planted in you, it all happens by faith. When we read that word, believe it. That's how this relationship with God works. Confessing our sin to him. It's beautiful to start your day out like that every day. So that's our time in the word today. Would you guys all stand with me? We're not going to close with a song today. We're just going to close it with a prayer, with a couple moments of silence. Father, we just want to come to you, Lord, and I thank you so much for your scriptures and for the story of Pharaoh and his hard heart, Lord. And I want to pray for every single heart that's in this room. We can't see the invisible heart. We don't know what is going on in each other's hearts. But I pray that you would keep us from becoming callous. I know, Lord, that we've been faithful to glorify you, Jesus, here in this place. And so you're, you're knocking on the door of our hearts. And Lord, you had a body when you were on this earth and it was given in sacrifice for us. You let it be slain as a lamb is slain. And now you live with that body up in heaven forever, eternally. You're a man and God. And Father, you are seated up in your throne. But the Holy Spirit didn't have a body until our bodies were cleansed by your blood, Jesus. And as we are cleansed, and when we decide, and when we choose to surrender our whole body to you. Our hands are now your hands. Our words are your words. Our lips are your lips. Our mind is your mind. When we choose to surrender every part of our body and life to you, Spirit, you take it. It is our reasonable service to give it all to you. And you come inside us and you are like the hand inside of glove that, that gives strength and power to our feeble bodies and lives. Father, I pray that you would do a great cleansing work in our hearts. We cannot cleanse ourselves. But we can believe that you will cleanse us. Lord, I pray that you would help us confess our sins to you. Lord, we are selfish and we... We think we know how to live our lives, and we don't. Help us to live according to your word. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Help us to surrender all to you every day. Amen. I just want to encourage you all that when we live fully surrendered to the Lord, we have a promise that we have victory in every area of our life.
marriage, parenting, work, anything, you have a promise. And if you're not experiencing victory, spiritual power, when you preach, spiritual authority, when you lead, something's wrong. And we need to go back and surrender and keep going back, keep confessing sin until we see that victory in our lives. It's granted, it's not earned. It's granted, and you have been granted it by the Holy Spirit, okay? God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you.